What did you learn from your family of origin? How have you found new ways to relate to your family in recovery? Welcome to episode 137 of The Recovery Show. Today we're going to talk about family. This episode is brought to you by Christine. She used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Christine, for your generous contribution. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at The Recovery Show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experiences as they relate to the topic of family. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I will be your host today. Joining me is co-host Mara. Welcome to The Recovery Show, Mara. Hi. It's good to have you back. It's been a while. Awesome to be here. The first segment of today's episode of The Recovery Show will be our discussion of the topic family. Following a short break, we'll talk about our lives in recovery, about how we practice these principles in all our affairs. We won't follow that with your email or voice contributions because, hey, nobody sent any this week. Uh, Mara, you picked a reading for us. The reading I picked is from The Language of Letting Go by Melody Beattie. She's an author who writes about codependency, and I've found that that's something that relates to my family of origin, that in a lot of ways in my family of origin, I didn't really exist, or my reality didn't exist because I was completely living in my parents' reality, whether it was enmeshment or neglect. So I had absolutely no way to know what was theirs or what's yours and what's mine. And so that also meant that I had difficulty establishing boundaries when one isn't taught what is your property and what is mine. So this reading is called Property Lines. A helpful tool in our recovery, especially in the behavior we call detachment, is learning to identify who owns what. Then we let each person own and possess his or her rightful property. If another person has an addiction, a problem, a feeling, or a self-defeating behavior, that is their property, not ours. If someone is a martyr, immersed in negativity, controlling, or manipulative, that is their issue, not ours. If someone has acted and experienced a particular consequence, Both the behavior and the consequence belong to that person. People's lies, deceptions, tricks, manipulations, abusive behaviors, inappropriate behaviors, cheating behaviors, and tacky behaviors belong to them too, not us. People's hopes and dreams are their property. Their guilt belongs to them too. Their happiness or misery is also theirs. So are their beliefs and messages. If some people don't like themselves, that is their choice. Their choices are their property, not ours. What people choose to say and do is their business. What is our property? Our property includes our behaviors, problems, feelings, happiness, misery, 
choices, and messages. Our ability to love, care, and nurture. Our thoughts, our denial, our hopes and dreams for ourselves. Whether we allow ourselves to be controlled, manipulated, deceived, or mistreated is our business. In recovery, we learn an appropriate sense of ownership. If something isn't ours, we don't take it. If we take it, we learn to give it back. Let other people have their property and learn to own and take good care of what's ours. Today, I will work at developing a clear sense of what belongs to me and what doesn't. If it's not mine, I won't keep it. I will deal with myself, my issues, and my responsibilities. I'm going to... I'm going to gather from the fact that you picked that reading. You grew up learning codependency, um, but maybe you could say a little bit about sort of what what your family was like in terms of you know, codependency or uh, alcoholism addiction that was there. Uh, that probably when you were a child seemed like just the way things were. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, what I've learned in Al-Anon is about what is a reality and what is the story I tell myself and learning to face what is actual reality, no matter how painful it is with my family of origin, the consequences were a lot that I lived a lot in stories and I ended up having to dissociate a lot because of the trauma. So, there was a lot of trauma in my family. There wasn't active alcoholism or addiction. My mother, I suspect, um, grew up with an alcoholic father. But what there was in my family was that I was both enmeshed and abandoned, that there was this toxic combination of my mother's disease and my father's neglect, or some people might call it love avoidance. I once asked my father about my mother's disease and in like true denial form, he had, he really had no idea. Um, he knew he, she took some pills for something, which is interesting because he was married to her for 17 years and he had no idea what was happening with her health. Um, she was abusive. She had very violent demands to enmesh. Smothering was the word that I used. Um, her abuse was both emotional and um, physical. The therapists that I've gone to have both said that she probably had borderline personality disorder. And for me, that experience left me with fears that I had to start working on 10 years ago that also probably um, caused my brother's alcoholism. I mean, there's, there's no, none of us really caused it. It's, yeah. it's a disease, but it certainly was something that both marked him and I. Um, for me, it ended up being, you know, fears of being drained, engulfed, controlled, used, manipulated by really both my parents their, both of their reality and this sort of expectation to prevent them, to, to prevent them and <laughs> more like protect them, you know, from my reality, mm. which is very confusing as a child. 
as someone who's actually being emotionally and physically abused, you are also the one who has to nurture and protect them. Like the expectation was a lot that, um, I was forced to nurture my mother and also to protect my father from both her and from myself. So it it was, it was a lot of abandonment, you know, in various ways, you know, my mother's abuse was this like intense control. And in a way, this person that's coming towards you so powerfully that it completely obliterates any connection. And then on the other hand, my dad's really his intense denial um, of any of the abuse that was going on. You know, he was just not, he was never around. He had an affair with the woman that eventually became my stepmother. They divorced and I would have to tell two stories and I would have to be the chameleon, which was something that when my dad eventually found out what was going on, my chameleon quality was something that was very shocking to him. The fact that I could just get up and be okay Mm. in the face of everything that happened. Because that's what you learned. That's what you had to practice. Absolutely. Absolutely. And certainly when I got into Al-Anon, the revelation that I was not alone And that in the face of someone's immense disease, that's just completely overpowering, you know, that there were other people like me who basically never knew love, never knew boundaries, and never really got to know their own reality until that person was usually, uh, I mean, for me, out of my life, because my mother wasn't um, in my life after I was 13. But then I also had to deal with um, be feeling very disconnected from my brother who, uh, whose eventual, um, alcoholism and su- substance abuse was triggered, you know, when he went off to college, you know, neither of us were parented. So neither of us had skills to basically survive in the real world. Mm. Um, you know, my father was a completely different challenge that was less intensely huge, but it had an impact because he was completely absent. Even when he's in front of me, he's absent as any kind of nurturer and teacher. So I still basically had to be, even though it was completely much better without the physical abuse and without the like walking on eggshells than I had with my mother, you know, without having to tell two stories I still in this sort of low level learned that I still had to be needless. I needed to be less isolated, disconnected. This weird thing that my father would like sort of demand that I raise myself, you know, his career was basically his number one love. And I, I, came to terms with the fact that he used sort of money and career as his way to parent. But like as a 13 year old, you don't understand why it's an unreasonable request to like ask for an allowance, you know, and my, my father and my stepmother would completely explode and they would say that I was greedy and that I was not, you know, grateful. And I was like, no, I just want to learn about managing money. I thought that was like a thing. (laughs) Yeah. 
it was always this idea that like, I couldn't have any demands. I, it was my role to support whatever my parent needed to do, which for him was his career hmm. and anything that, you know, gave it, it, my parents were children, you know, they were very successful professionals, but in a lot of ways, you know, they demanded that their children support them emotionally. Wow. I feel like, I feel like my, my life was so normal. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is also the story that I'm learning about yes, because I've yes. learned, I'm, I'm trying to relearn this story and certainly around the holidays. I think everybody has the difficulty is like, I think for absolutely everyone, it's a completely confusing mix of emotions. And like the holidays are like, here, let's dump you into the middle of this, like drowning morass, <laughs> yeah. you know, where you're supposed to get love here, but you don't understand why you don't get love. And that's really, then all these childhood feelings come up. I mean, so I don't know. I just think for everyone, I mean, I have, were your holidays, do they feel at all like you're forced to sort of have, you know, endure, you know, feelings that are sometimes unresolved? Well, let's see. Why don't I, why don't I go back a little and uh, and we'll come back to that. The family I grew up in was was very actually normal. It seems, um, although it, I think it it almost always seems normal when you're in it as a child. But even looking back, um, the main thing that I identify is uh, my mother's codependent traits. Her need to make sure that everybody else was happy before she could be satisfied, uh, and that that's the one that that I really identified strongly in myself and once I found it in myself and started working on it then I really saw it in her and so this is you know again as you say the the story that that I I learned in recovery because I didn't see it I didn't see it when I was when I was young that was just I, I, that was the way things were supposed to be you know you had to you had to think about everybody else before you could think about yourself which is sort of confusing for a child who's most children are, are very self-centered. And, and I know I was, and I, I, I think back to some, some incidents when I was young where I was acting very self-centered and I, and I cringe, but I still learned this thing about, about taking care of other people and that it's my job to take care of other people. So the thing for me when I get back with my family is, is sort of twofold. One is these, these traits that I see in my parents and, and more in my mother than my father, who it was sort of neutral is not exactly the word. Um, he, he had some anger issues. They did not manifest in any sort of abuse, but um, I know that I, I've talked to my sister about this and she, she was scared of him for a long time because of the way that, you know, he'd just get really, loud and sort of forceful when he was angry. And, and the thing that I learned from him was there is one right way to do things. And if other people are not doing it the right way, then you yell at them. That's it. That's another one that, that I have been working on and that I've learned to work around. And so when I go back and I'm with my family of origin, the issues are more about these character traits that I now identify and that they bug me and that I have to let go of trying to ever change them. That's why I say I, f I feel so normal. <laughs> 
and and now these days it's it's a whole different set of issues because they're they are getting into what is very clearly old age and their ability to to do things that they used to do their ability to even interact with people in how do I put this their minds seem to run a little slower and particularly my mother's. And so that's the, that's the thing that I, I struggle with now, but that's, that's the now that's not the then when I started recognizing these codependent traits in myself and I started recognizing that I had, I had learned them from my mother and, and only recently have I recognized that uh, I think to some extent, my inability to express openly uh, love for the rest of my family comes from the fact that my father didn't do that, at least as far as I can remember. I do not remember my father ever saying, I love you. Oh, wow. And, you know, I know he did. I know he does, but I don't think he ever said it. And in consequence, I didn't learn to say it. And that has been something that has been an, an issue in romantic relationships and now that I'm recognizing it, you know, it's hard for me to say I love you to my children, which what the heck, okay, <laughs> you know? Um, and and it's something that I, I'm consciously working on. And, and of course, my wife would always say, you need to say it. I'm like, well, can't you tell by the way I act? Because I think that's what I learned, right? That my parents loved me because they fed me and they clothed me and they they were encouraging for the things that I wanted to do and, and all that. But I I don't know how much they ever said it. Hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. We each have our own family, uh, our own, our own issues from our own family. And some, some, I think show up a lot more severely than others in, you know, different people. But the other thing that, that I just wonder about is where did this, this codependency in my mother, you know, where did she learn that from? And it's so, it's so characteristic of, um, the things that I see in people who grew up in alcoholism, you know, that, that my friends have expressed to me that I, there's got to be some, some back in the family somewhere. And I know I've heard in meetings and I've read that, that the effects of an alcoholic parent or an alcoholic family can persist over generations. And I, I swear I'm seeing that in my own family because my my mother's brother definitely drank alcoholically for a good part of his life and eventually found recovery. And his son also identifies as an alcoholic and, and found recovery. And so it's clearly in the gene pool, but I can't identify anybody like my grandfather. Maybe, maybe not. I'll never know. He died when I was in college uh, before I had any notion that an alcoholic was not a bum sitting on the sidewalk with a 40 ounce or in a bag, you know, so uh, I, I just can't right. identify that. So it's in there. I got the codependency thing. I'm looking at, I'm looking at our, our thought questions here. And what did I learn in my family of origin about relating to other people and about love? And I sort of talked about, about that. I think the, uh, the inability or the, that, you know, you love people, you show your love through your actions. You don't say it. Um, I, I'm pretty sure I learned that. And, uh, and this whole thing about, you know, I'm supposed to fix people. I'm supposed to make sure they're happy before I can be happy. Um, that, that was so prevalent in, in my family. It's just, I just thought that was the way it was supposed to be. For me, 
I think I didn't really even understand what codependency was. I mean, I, I have three and a half years of recovery and I feel like it's only in my most recent relationship that I've had to sort of actually define what is codependency because, you know, I, I entered the relationship and I was like, I will not be in a relationship that's enmeshed and I will not be in a relationship that's codependent. But as the behaviors come up, if for me, I don't have a thorough understanding of the definition because in my family of origin, it was all about dissociating. Like I don't have a lot of childhood memories. Mm. And so I need to very much define what, what is reality. So there's this author, her name's Pia Melody, and she writes about codependency. She's an expert in codependency and, and addiction. And an Al-Anon friend was the one who suggested her to me. And uh, she writes uh, that, that codependency is uh, difficulty experiencing appropriate levels of self-esteem, which is to say difficulty loving the self. Um, difficulty setting functional boundaries with other people, uh, difficult, which is difficulty protecting yourself. This third point is one that's very difficult for me, which is difficulty owning one's own reality appropriately. That is to say difficulty identifying who one is and knowing how to share that appropriately with others. And I like that there are those words, how to share it and also how to share it appropriately. Mm. Um, Difficulty addressing one's adult needs and wants, which means difficulty with self-care, which I like to call step zero, (laughs) self-care. Difficulty experiencing and expressing one's reality in moderation under various circumstances. And with a lot of these come symptoms, which control, resentment, impairs spirituality, which is things we all deal with in Al-Anon and difficulty with intimacy. Um, Mm. You know, she, she writes, I like this quote um, because they came out of a family of origin that was less than nurturing. They have core symptoms of difficulty with boundaries and difficulty owning and expressing one's reality. They have not been taught how to have healthy boundaries since their rights and needs were not respected or taken care of by their parents. And for me, I really liked that she put the word rights. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't even know, you know, when you say, what did you learn in your family origin about relating to other people? I had no, I had no reality to share with someone else. So therefore I could not be intimate. I didn't understand that there was supposed to be a relationship between me and myself. Like to a certain extent, I had to deal with my parents and their behaviors that I didn't understand. And so I did have this relationship with myself, but it, a lot of it was about hyper-awareness. It was about survival. It was about being scared of like dying or being killed. Mm. And that's not really a relationship with yourself. No. And so I, I had like no intimacy and I also had like no spontaneity. She has this awesome thing where she talks about how the child has to adapt to the needy caregiver, which in this situation was my mother, that the child has to shut down their spontaneity, that they gradually feel more and more empty 
or dead inside themselves. And at some point seeks intensity sometimes to mask this deadness that it's in our spontaneity that we're the most real or alive, that this is when we are accessing our authentic selves, which is where our spiritual reality resides. And therefore the spontaneity that allows us to be real allows us to be spiritual. It's in contact with this energy that our lives have real meaning. And so I think, you know, my family taught me that I was a burden that, you know, my reality was completely irrelevant. And this still comes up in conversations with my dad where he's trying, you know, very innocently to fix my brother's alcoholism. So my dad will be sort of selling my brother's family to me and he'll be chastising me without ever even asking, you know, perhaps there's a reason why, like, which I have. And I, and, you know, I try to talk about it, but my reality is still pretty irrelevant. It, it leads me to still to this day feel unloved, you know, that I'm a burden, that I always need to be sort of 10 miles ahead of where I am, that the fact that my brother's drinking and his partner's drinking and the fact how they treat their children is something that's not comfortable for me that I have to somehow get over that. And I have to somehow be like 10 miles ahead. And like, like you said that, like I, it's my job. I mean, especially, I don't know, as a woman, my dad comes from a very traditional Croatian family where the men sit around and the women do everything, you know, that he has to sort of get away from that. And then I just get this idea that sort of like I, in relationship, I need to protect people from me, Hmm. that there's something about me. Like I'm too, too big, too loud, too intense, too smart. Let that, that whatever it is, that's like really true for me beating like my reality, like that I can't, that is like an attack on someone else. And that means like, I can't, be intimate. And then I can't be spiritual because I'm not being intimate with myself and I'm not sharing it with other people. But what is my job is like, I have to fix situations. You know, I had to raise myself. I have to fix my mom. (laughs) Yeah. You know, my mom always told me that I was going to be a failure. Like that was her, that was her party line. And I think like for me that, that turned into the idea that like, I can't have a relationship, like a love relationship and also have a relationship with myself. And so, you know, I get really sort of confused as to sort of be like, and when I'm in relationship about like, what is it about this? That's mine where it's my inability to tolerate anger or threatening and inappropriate behavior. And like, where is it truly unmanageable? Because in my childhood, everything was my responsibility to handle. And that makes reality very disproportionate and very magnified. And sometimes, you know, just one extreme to the other where I'm not sure, like I talk a lot about middle ground that like, I was never taught this, like easy does it, keep it simple one step at a time, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. that middle ground that we learn in Al-Anon is very difficult for me. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's interesting just having this conversation is sort of clarifying, seems like it's clarifying some things in my head. And really, you know, well, I think the reading, the reading talked about difficulty with intimacy and that is definitely a, an area where um, I have, I have struggled sort of true intimacy. And, you know, I think some of that came from my childhood and some of that came from 
being in a in a relation long term relationship with an active alcoholic where the intimacy of that relationship was severely damaged. Right. I I think some of it, as you say, some of that came from my childhood where, um, you know, I had feelings that I never talked about with anybody because, you know, it wasn't something you did, right? You don't talk about your feelings. I don't think we talked about feelings very much in my family. I'll have to ask my sister what she thinks when, when I see her next. But I think that's true. We didn't talk about feelings. And so it's not something that I talk about. It's not something that one talks about. And I remember, I remember as a, as a teenager, I guess getting into college age, I would take the bus to go places. And there was this thing that, that would happen. I mean, sitting in the bus at night with somebody next to me that I never saw before, I will never see again. And we could have these amazing conversations. But I couldn't have those conversations with somebody that I knew, uh, with somebody that I had uh, some sort of relationship with. And I think, you know, it's about this, I'm never going to see you again, so you can't bring this back at me or something. Absolutely. That's sort of, I think that's a, a codependent kind of a feeling from what you've said there. And especially the whole issue about boundaries. I mean, I had no boundaries. Um I didn't know where I stopped and where, where you started. I didn't know what was my responsibility and what was not my responsibility because everything was my responsibility. And I think I mentioned this in the, in the podcast before, but when I was a freshman in college, uh, my girlfriend came back from uh, Christmas break and disclosed to me that she had been date raped. And my immediate thought was, how am I going to fix this? This was not my thing to fix. It was not something that I could fix, but that was my immediate thought. You know, that was where my, that was where my, my thoughts went, where my, my feelings went, that my responsibility to fix everything in the world. And no wonder that then when, when uh, my wife descended into her, her alcoholism, no wonder my life got totally unmanageable because I was supposed to fix it and I couldn't. It was very hard for me to take life on life's terms because if something was wrong, I was supposed to fix it. I needed to control all the people around me and everything around me so that I would be okay. Because if something around me, a person around me or something around me was not okay, I was not okay. And this is what I learned growing up. And it, and it's taken me a long time to, well, maybe not a long time. I mean, I've been, I've been in Al-Anon for what, 13 something Going on 14 years, wow. And that was something that I started to learn pretty pretty quickly. Uh, this whole thing about boundaries, I mean, quickly, I mean like three years, four years, and, and I'm still learning. But it was something that became obvious was a problem. But then I think about, so how did the things that I learned in my family growing up, how did, how did I bring them into the family that I formed with my wife and then children and particularly when alcoholism entered into that family. I learned denial at a young age because everything had to be okay. Because the only way I could be okay is everything had to be okay. And if things weren't okay, then either I wasn't okay or I would deny that they weren't okay. The anger thing from my father came out. I say from my father. Okay. But you know, it's my anger thing. I I own that. Um, And I'm sure that, there was some influence from his anger thing 
on mine that came out in, in as rage when I was in a situation that I felt out of control. Uh, and I would try to grab onto any, anything that went wrong on top of all the, all the horrible things that were going wrong. Any, any little thing that went wrong would bring this explosion of, of anger at, at my children to some extent at my wife, but not so much because, you know, she was, she was the one I was really angry at. So maybe it wasn't safe to be angry at her openly. I don't know. Uh, and my coworkers, I mean, just all over the place, but you talked about not having much memory of childhood. And my daughter says she really doesn't remember very much before she was six. And I'm trying to like, is there some connection there? Was she growing up in this, in this dysfunctional situation that is, you know, that she's just blocked it out or what? I don't know, but it's sort of it, 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 interesting connection um, in, in my head there. I don't know if it's real or not. I definitely brought these patterns of from, from what I learned in my family, I definitely brought them into my family, despite the fact that as a child, you, well, you probably said for sure, but I, I would, you know, I'm not going to do those things that my parents do, right? Well, yeah, I did them. Did you know about your wife's alcoholism before you decided to have children? Oh, no. How did, no. Oh, no. No. Right. Uh-uh. No, it, it didn't really, it didn't become really evident um, until I think she would date the period when she really started drinking heavily when the kids were about three. She looks back now and she says, yeah, I, I've been drinking alcoholically since I was a teenager. It was just sort of the extent of it that, that changed, um, the sort of regularity of it perhaps that changed, um, in the, in the last decade or so of her, of her drinking that it got really, really obvious. But until, until I came into Al-Anon, I was not willing to use the word alcoholic to describe her. That's how strong my denial was. Um, despite the evidence that, that was right in front of me, I couldn't use that word. I just thought she needed to cut back. She needed to drink normally. I did not understand. Um, was that part of secret keeping for you? Oh God, like did we keep it, that as secret? Oh my God. I mean, was it just like this automatic thing that like what happens in the house is a secret? Cause I know that oh, yeah. certainly was what it was, what it was for me that like pain is a secret. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and I, you know, I don't remember having that feeling as a child, um, but clearly it was, it was there ready to jump out at me when, when things started going sideways in our, in our family, we stopped having people over. I stopped talking about what was going on at all. I couldn't talk about it to my friends. I couldn't talk about it to my family, the family outside the house. And we didn't talk about it inside the house much either. And, and it was a secret. It was a huge secret. And only when it got to the point where what was happening, like in terms of, I'm trying to remember exactly when, but when, when like her going to treatment started to affect my ability to be regularly at work and the kids to be regularly at school for a little while there, um, 
that's that's sort of what forced me to start talking to some people outside the family about it other than like professionals. Um, you know, I had to tell my boss, like my, my wife's in treatment and I'm going to have to go over there like once a week to support her in her treatment program. And well, like my kid's teacher, one of my kid's teachers said, so what's, what's going on anyway? You know, where's, where's, where's your wife? And so, well, you know, so that's when it started. I started to open up to other people outside of the family and outside of the treatment community and outside of the rooms of Al-Anon. And I was already in Al-Anon, I think, at that point. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was already in Al-Anon at that point. But really, until I came into the program, I was not willing to, to use that term. I was not willing to. That, that's how strong my denial was at that point. I, you know, I, could, I saw all the evidence, but it, I, I was not, not going to admit it to myself. So clearly I couldn't admit it to anybody else. Right. I mean, I know for me, I just had no idea about like sort of what an emotional process was. Like it, this, I, this expectation that I always had to be 10 miles ahead of where I was was so strong that like, I didn't even know what the beginning looked like. Like, so, you know, when you're talking about coming into Al-Anon, you know, I did a share at a meeting the other week and I was, I was a mess, but I showed up that way. And like Al-Anon taught me to do that, that that's okay. You start at the beginning, like mm-hmm. you start with whatever unrecovered thoughts you have, because there are recovered thoughts underneath, you know, the fact that like, I would have so much shame and blame of myself. And I think that in my romantic relationships, you know, that I have been dating someone with a very intense personality who also has anger issues that scare me. My ability to be honest is mine. You know, of course there are circumstances he contributes. Is he able to even hear me? Like, of course those are questions and those are questions that we deal with when someone is active in their disease. But for me, it turns into a secret and it turns into shame and it turns into blame like that. I am supposed to fix things. Mm -hmm. Um, Totally there. Totally there with you. And then I end up getting locked in inside myself. I mean, there is nothing that makes me feel more self-destructive than the idea that I have to fix something that is unmanageable or if I have to fix something that belongs to someone else. And certainly (laughs) what's ironic is that, I feel like Al-Anon has almost increased that pain on a certain level because I know what serenity looks like Mm -hmm. because I can actually, as a child, I didn't know that there was anything else. So this was normal. Whereas an adult, I, I have moments, I have periods, I have years of, of having serenity. And so then when I don't have it and I can identify what's happening, oh man, that pain is really difficult. Like I want to share myself. I want real intimacy, but like you said, like that fear of sharing things because it's going to be manipulated or used against me later is so painful. Cause now I know that like, in order to be intimate, I, ha- I have to talk about this. You know, there has to be a way to talk about, you know, what's happening inside me and to share my own reality. So it's like this, this question that you talked about, about, how did my family affect my ability, you know, to take life on life's terms? You know, they talk about in the codependency part about the impaired spirituality. And I certainly, you know, I went to Catholic school 
Um, but I always had this like leaning towards spirituality and my family just had, had no idea. And certainly like the way Al-Anon approaches it, where sort of you create your own, I don't want to say system of spirituality, but you know, God is something that is for you to decide how you relate to. I just didn't have this sort of idea that there was something bigger than myself. You know, it was always that my parent was a higher power and and that, you know, that's a, a, a symptom of codependency. And certainly it's one of the things like that there is something bigger that I just never could really fully grasp, like fully grasp and fully accept about myself until I got into Al-Anon. Yeah. Yeah. And we've been, we've been moving somewhat into, into the solution here, but how has being in Al-Anon, being in recovery um, helped you to relate differently to people that you consider family, to people who are family, uh, to your family of origin. Um, how is how is that changing for you now? Well, I mean, I just never I never knew what love was until I got to Al-Anon, and that's that's just a fact. I I was probably more the love addict in my previous relationships. And I was a serious codependent in my marriage. You know, this idea of a healthy relationship was just a foreign concept. Like I wanted it. I wanted it. I started therapy when I was 25, like real serious therapy. I tried therapy when I was in college, but it wasn't until, you know, you hit bottom, you know, I came in on the heels of a divorce and on the heels of of the breakup of a relationship after my divorce, you know, where I was very codependent and I probably pursued that person to try to enmesh with them, you know, thinking that that was real love and trust when I really had no idea. PM Melody talks about that in healthy relationships. You are able to nurture others in a way that promotes their emotional and spiritual growth and promotes their taking responsibility for themselves, thereby increasing their self-esteem. That when you love yourself, you're able to nurture yourself, focus on your own emotional and spiritual growth, and take responsibility for yourself, thereby increasing your own self-esteem. When one partner is asked for intimacy or support by the other, each person can say yes or no in a healthy way without either partner being diminished. The self-esteem of each blossoms when nurtured within this healthy relationship. And this idea that like there's a chase or that there's this diminishment that happens within relationships was just so painful for me. Mm-hmm. And I didn't understand like how, you know, to make it stop. And so to a certain extent, I like to say that I sort of thank my higher power for like how my parents denied me love because now I have this amazing community of incredible women that I wouldn't have had otherwise. You know, I have a lot of older women who are are very close friends and who really get to show me new ways of being in family, that I have choices about it that, you know, incidents that happened between me and my alcoholic brother and his alcoholic family, you know, that I have choices, that I'm not just the perfect sister there to like 
provide a good example. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that that recovery has done for me and family is, and and what you said there, the allowing people to or letting people be who they are without diminishing or letting them do their. Can you find that again and read that? Yeah. When one partner is asked for acts of intimacy or support by the other, each person can say yes or no in a healthy way without either partner being diminished. Yeah. And that is so foreign to the way I thought I had to live my life for a long time. That if, if I said no, it diminished my partner and, and presumably vice versa, although being, you know, the codependent, uh, it was okay for, for me to not get what I needed, sort of. And that is something that has definitely uh, changed for me, is that understanding that saying no, uh, as I, I said last week, actually, saying no can be an act of love. Um, if I'm not able to honestly provide what is asked for at, at that time, uh, I should say no, because... Um, if if I'm asked to provide intimacy or whatever, and I I can't do it from my whole self, then it's a lie, and it diminishes the relationship if I if I try to provide it. You know, I never understood that, and it's still a sort of a foreign concept. But um, I remember a couple or three years ago, I don't know, a few years ago. Uh, my wife asked me to do something and I didn't want to do it, but I said yes, because I thought that was what I was supposed to do. I was being helpful, supportive, one of those things, right? And then I called my sponsor and I said, I said, so I said yes to this thing and I really didn't want to do it, but I said yes. And, and what he told me was, he said, if you never say no, then your yeses are meaningless. So I try to care I tried to carry that forward and to understand that if I say yes grudgingly, that really doesn't help either of us. And that, that when I say yes, I need to mean it. How has that worked with you for someone who's still active in their addiction? Because for me I found that when I've dated yeah. someone active in their addiction, you know, their tendency to lash out, manipulate, react in huge ways is very frightening. Like sometimes I like to say that, you know, I can detach and detach, but sometimes it gets to the point where I'm invisible. And I know that's not real detachment. That's, that's my own misapplication, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. you know, it the, addiction has an impact like yeah it does that's a hard question for me to answer from personal experience um because she's been in recovery for 10 years now and so thinking back to what it was like then and where i was then and i don't think i was i, I know i wasn't at the point then that i am at now um, but I definitely was trying to set boundaries and about at least about some stuff. I think I just, I, I just kept working at it. I don't know. Um, I, <laughs> well, I, 
ask because for me, I very much relate to that feeling of guilt and obligation and how it's basically this straitjacket that produces for me incredible amounts of resentment. Like that I just walk around with this anger because I can't figure out, you know, I can't fix. Like, I know that I'm supposed to say no. I know that this is what I want, but I don't know how to tell this person because they're active in their disease. So how, you know, and so that, that starts to become unmanageable for me. I think I manipulated. I think I, I definitely know there were times when I manipulated a situation rather than coming right out and saying what I wanted or what I didn't want. I tried to manipulate the situation to make it come out the way that I wanted it to. You know, it it definitely was a process and I definitely, (sighs) wow, I'm I'm trying to remember and and it's, it's not, it's not working well for me right now. (laughs) I wanted to think a little bit and talk a little bit about how, and maybe you have already, how recovery has helped us to be with our family of origin. And for me, the tools that, that I learned to um, live in the, in the alcoholic situation, uh, detachment and acceptance, I think were the big ones. Acceptance, particularly in the sense of accepting that the other person is who they are and that I can't change them. Uh, and it's sort of the detachment is in there somewhere too, that really has helped me when I find myself being triggered by, um, family behaviors and in in particular by my mother's behaviors, which now that, you know, it's one of those things like, you know, the, the, the worst, what is the saying? Something like the, the, the worst person, I can't get it right. But you know how somebody who stopped smoking is like the most virulent anti-smoking person, uh, as opposed to those of us who never smoked. And, you know, because what I see is these behaviors that I've given up, that I've let go of, that I, I now understood were, were harmful to me. And I see them particularly in my mother and it drives me nuts unless if I let it, I, I might've told this, I think I told this story, uh, but I was with my parents. We were out in California visiting my brother and we had, he was under dialysis at the time. So we had dropped him off at the dialysis center and we were going to get dinner and I made an offhand remark about, gee, I haven't had any Mexican food yet on this trip. And my mother went into this whole sort of monologue about, well, she didn't really know anything about Mexican restaurants, but uh, I'm sure we could find one. And But she didn't know where if any of them were any good. And, and she just was like going on and on. And I was like, oh my God, what did I do? You know? <laughs> uh, and uh, I just pretty calmly said, that's, you know, that's okay. I just, it was just a remark and I'll, I'll find my Mexican food at another time because this is not, you know, it's not something that they eat and, and we'll just, we'll go to the restaurant you guys want to go to and it'll be fine. And and it took a while to, to sort of get her back to, 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 you know, not worked up about this. Oh my God, Spencer wants Mexican food thing. That was after I'd been in, in the program for a while. And so I had some tools to deal with it. Well, and so the idea was, is that you were able to not go to the hardware store for milk, that you could, you could satisfy your need, you know, even if that person, you know, said no, 
or in a, in a way was saying no. Yes. Yes. She was saying, you're right. She was saying no indirectly. She was saying no in, in the way of, of trying to, trying to get to what I wanted without getting to what I wanted. You're right. And I had learned to recognize that and, and to mm, defuse, deflect something, some, some word there. I don't know. Uh, but it's, it's these, these tools of acceptance and detachment are, have been just really, really critical uh, as, as my families, my, my parents in particular are getting older. Have you read that amazing reading on acceptance in the big book? At least once. The acceptance was the answer. Yeah. Yeah. I know that quote. Why don't I read it? Because I love it. It's so great. And acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I am disturbed, it is because I find some person, place, thing, or situation, some fact of my life unacceptable to me. And I can find no serenity until I accept that person, place, thing, or situation as being exactly the way as it is supposed to be at this moment. Nothing, absolutely nothing happens in God's world by mistake. Until I could accept my own behavior, I could not stay sober. In this case, let's say emotionally sober. Mm -hmm. Unless I accept life completely on life's terms, I cannot be happy. I need to concentrate not so much on what needs to be changed in the world as on what needs to be changed in me and my attitudes. Yep. That's exactly it. And that's, that's the, the way in which I can deal with, with my family of origin. And to some extent, although I see them much less frequently with my wife's family of origin and probably with all the other people around me as well. And that's, that's a great place for, for me to end. What, um, what would you say uh, to somebody well, who's coming into the program maybe and, and is like, I can't deal with my family? Do you? <laughs> well, I mean, it's difficult because my dad's a heavy drinker. He's an unrecovered Al-Anon. Um, my brother is an alcoholic. His partner is an alcoholic. I know they've abused other uh, substances as well. They have three kids, you know, so I have to be sort of the, I'm it, when I'm involved with my family, I have to be, I love how I used have to be as if I'm forced, right. Yep, yep. There um, to be receptive to sort of all of it. You know, my dad's desire to fix and my brother's, you know, inappropriate behavior. I watch the effect it has on the kids I think, you know, I had, I recently had a phone call with my dad where I was talking about a difficult situation I was in and what he, the content of what he had to say was not at all helpful to me. And I think before recovery, I would feel unloved. I would feel abandoned. I would feel invisible, but I actually did not feel that way. I could just break it down into really small pieces, which was that I could be grateful for the simple act that I dialed the phone and called my dad. Like we do not talk on the phone. The fact that he picked up the fact that I could actually tell him the truth about my reality, Mm. um, that I didn't react against his disapproval and that I could 
be simply satisfied with merely just the connection and support. And I didn't have to obsess about the content or sort of his desire to fix or what seemed under the surface as disapproval, definite discomfort with sort of my reality. And of course, like he and I don't talk. And so of course my reality is going to be uncomfortable for him. And you know, to a certain extent, there's that part of recovery that has really helped me where there are moments where I can be gentle, but also a lot of times because of the sort of dissociation involved with, with my family and the sort of dominance of other people's reality, it can be very hard for me to feel my feelings and to connect with like sort of more fiery feelings like anger that say, alcoholics tend to have an easier time relating to. Um, you know, there's this quote from the big book that I really like. Um, and it's from the story physician heal thyself. Um, he says, so I got the big book and I read it and this is what it said. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. The word thoroughly rang a bell. And then it went on to say half measures availed us nothing. We stood at the turning point and the last sentence was we asked his protection and care with complete abandon, complete abandon, half measures availed us nothing, thoroughly followed our path, completely gave themselves to this simple program. And I think for me, sometimes the fire of also hearing, you know, the words of from an AA perspective, because it's the same program in different language is very helpful to me. Um, you know, that sort of allows me to, you know, at critical moments, not be ruled by fear to be ruled more by my higher self. And that I start to learn slowly these things that acting despite fear is how fear is relieved that there are certain things that are, that are, out of my control when it comes to my family of origin. I've gradually been able to understand through Al-Anon, keep it simple, easy does it, you know, why I have no desire to connect with my brother or his family, you know, how uncomfortable the drinking makes me, how uncomfortable the expectation of me to be someone that fits their reality and not someone, you know, not show up present in my reality and who I am, you know, to show up as some sort of fantasy of a rescuer for these children. It took me a couple of years to understand that these kids have their own higher power, you know, and how do I, what can I do in the face of this drinking? That's unacceptable to me. Mm-hmm. Um, in eventually, I mean, it took years. Eventually I found a way, you know, that I can gently and kindly tell them that I'm available to hang out in the mornings. You Mm. know, that doesn't bring, that doesn't get into the problem. Yeah. You know, for me, I feel like I do a lot of focusing on the problem rather than the solution. And we call it living in the solution. And sometimes it's the idea that like the solution often has nothing to do with the problem. (laughs) Yeah. You know, a lot of it usually means self care, but in this situation, I found a solution that is simple and while it doesn't feel simple inside, you know, it's just gradually sort of like opening myself up, 
you know, without the idea that the children are my responsibility, you know, that they have a higher power they are taking care of and that I'm not in control of anyone's destiny. And I'm only responsible to parent myself. So those family relationships are difficult because they come with a lot of unrecovered pressure. And it's my most difficult task to like not take that in. And it's, it's hard. And especially when you get into romantic relationships that you, where you're really, where you're really invested. Um, I think, like you said, you know, it's just one day at a time, (laughs) day by day, and you just work for it really hard and you sort of fight for it really hard. And eventually this stuff becomes automatic. Yep. After a short break, we will continue with our lives in recovery, where we talk about how recovery works in our daily lives and our meanings. And I had, I had fun picking music for this episode because there are so many songs about dysfunctional families out there. Um, and then I had trouble because there were too many. So I think I'm going to post the, uh, my Spotify playlist on the website at the recovery show.com slash 137. And you can, you can check out the, the ones that I, I picked that were possibilities and maybe you'll like some of them better than I did, uh, and think I should have picked them instead. And the first one that I'm going to talk about here is by pink. It's called family portrait. There's a, I think it's a chorus essentially where she, she sings in our family portrait. We look pretty happy. Let's play pretend let's act like it comes naturally. And to me that speaks to the secrecy that we find in um, families with um, whatever dysfunction is going on inside the family. We have to make it look good to the outside world, the family portrait, we're all standing there smiling, looking like we're a family, even when things are falling apart inside the house. But then uh, there's these lyrics that, that uh, the whole song, but I, I picked out this verse and this, I come home to, this is my shelter. It ain't easy growing up in world war three, never knowing what love could be. You'll see. I don't want love to destroy me like it has done my family. And to me, that, that last line in particular speaks to the way in which we bring the things that we learned for good or for ill growing up. We bring them into our own lives and, and they affect us years later. section, I'm going to let you open it up to whatever period of time you want to talk about, because it, like you said, it's been about a year since you've been on the, on the podcast. For me and recovery, it's been a very eventful year. I made like huge progress. I'm still in it. (laughs) I have been in a very challenging relationship and I've had to really fight for my program. I very actively use the tools of the program, especially texts and calls. Um, I have my sponsee, I work the steps, I read the literature, I go to meetings, but always keeping that active connection of being able to call people and being able to text is one of the most wonderful parts of, of having the program. 
you know, I've really just been tirelessly fighting for my program. I've really felt really challenged over the last year. And it's been a lot of program in action rather sort of than the program as contemplation or study or reflection. You know, I think, I think my, my sponsor, she likes to say, I'm such a spiritual person when I'm all alone in my room. Oh, I'm so spiritual. And so, you know, we get in these relationships and, you know, certain things have fallen by the way. And I get to really see where self-care and honesty and things I've, I've had real trouble with in the face of a very challenging outside external circumstance and, you know, how to act centered in myself rather than as just a subject of someone else's behavior um, has been incredibly challenging, especially when this relationship, our, our triggers really don't behave well together. He has a trigger about being left and about abandonment. And I have a trigger about feeling controlled or feeling engulfed. And so he comes forward, I pull back, he comes forward, I pull back. And it, it it's been, a dance that we couldn't really get out of or, and we couldn't understand. And it's been a very, very challenging period of time. And it's sort of like the changes just will not stop. They just keep going. I need to find a way to stop, you know, find the places in the day where I can be intimate with myself. And it's, I, I mean, Al-Anon is just amazing because you always have this process. There's always an action to take, you know, because it's, it's our thinking isn't really our friend. And so I, I like the, I don't think it's a slogan, but you know, my sponsor always says that you act yourself into right thinking. Yeah, it should be. (laughs) And so it's difficult and it's possibly um, impossible to do with this person Sometimes the solution, you know, sometimes it's not running away from your problem. Sometimes it is actually solving your problem and it's knowing, you know, what is the difference? That's the part about the wisdom to know the difference. And there have been, the 2015 was basically completely chaotic, unmanageable, and there was a lot of trauma and, you know, Al-Anon carried me through and I'm here and I'm alive and (laughs) it's, how do I want 2016 to be, to be different? Cause I need some things to stop. That is basically where I am right now. Um, I'm at that sort of messy beginning, which is important for January. I think I'm probably not alone in that. Mm. Well, thank you. And we're glad you're still alive. <laughs> Thanks Spencer. You too. <laughs> so thinking about the week and I think I'm going to work backwards. Uh, went to a meeting this morning and we talked about step eight, uh, which is made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. And a lot of the discussion around the table was about willingness. And it, it, there was a comparison made uh, about willing willingness. Well, in the reading, I think it says something about, you know, I don't have to like something to be willing to do it. And, there was a comparison made to things like going to the dentist, which I don't know anybody who likes going to the dentist, but 
Many of us are willing. I like going to the dentist. You I do. like going to the dentist. You I love do. going to the dentist. Oh my God. Oh God. I had parents who didn't care for me. So the idea of uh, like, I wasn't a hypochondriac, but I did love the idea of like just being there and having someone taking care of me, uh, like who was predictable. They would like be very clear about what they were doing. They would talk to me clearly. No, I loved it. <laughs> Even as a kid. Awesome. Well, there you are. You're my, my, my counter example. I don't, I don't like going to the dentist, but I am willing to go to the dentist. Um, I, I don't like having to pass up the cupcake at work because I'm trying to lose weight, but I'm willing to pass up the cupcake at work because I'm trying to lose weight. Uh, you know, and, and that distinction feels important sometimes in this, in this matter of becoming willing to make amends. I may not like to make amends to somebody, but I am willing. And I see, and, and several times this week at work, um, had to admit that I was wrong, that I had made a mistake and then do what I needed to do to, to amend for that mistake. And some of the mistakes were not mine. They were like my teams, but still, um, I feel responsibility there and it's just, it's so sort of automatic now. Whereas 10 or 15 years ago, I would have done my best to just quietly fix it and not ever say anything. And now it's like, Oh, this thing's messed up and here's what we're going to do to fix it. And here's how long it's going to take. And we'll let you know when we're done. And everybody's like, cool. Okay. That's great. And, and what my, what my brain of my, my child brain would tell me is if you admit that you messed up, everybody's going to be mad at you and it's much better to hide it and just fix it. And that, you know, they didn't work when I was a kid and it, and it still doesn't work. And this way I've learned to do things in recovery with essentially step 10, which is uh, when we were continuing to take personal inventory. And when we were wrong, promptly admitted it, that just works so much better in my life than the way I used to do things and uh, been been doing the the willingness thing been do, uh, in in terms of both diet and exercise I, I'm trying to you know establish some new habits right I'm trying to establish a new pattern of exercising several times a week and so I was talking to a friend last week about step seven about becoming ready to have character defects removed and like, how does this actually happen? And, and noting that I have to, I have to practice the new behavior, you know, that my higher power may make it possible for me to practice new behavior, but I have to practice it. And I can, I can ask for, for things to be removed, but if I don't actually make steps in that direction, it's generally not happening for me. Unless it's something like fear that I absolutely can't do anything about myself. And so, I was, I've been reading this book about uh, how we develop habits. And one of the strategies that the author talks about is scheduling. I'm thinking, well, I'm not at the point where I can say, at this time on this day of the week, I'm always going to go to the gym. But what I have said is, I'm going to go to the gym three times in a week. And I know that it's better for me to leave a day in between visits. So on Monday, when I really didn't feel like getting up, and I knew I wasn't going to be able to go in the evening because I had something happening in the evening. So if I was going to go Monday, I had to go before I went to work. So I had to get up early 
and I really didn't feel like it, but what I could tell myself was, you're going to go three times this week, so if you don't go today, then when are you going to go? And that got me going. So it's not exactly like using the program, but it is, it is, it feels like it to me because it's a matter of understanding several things, like understanding how I, how I work, how my brain works and what I have to tell myself to get it to go somewhere. And it's also about being clear about what I want, because I think that's something that, that I've learned in the process of doing the program is that I have to be, I have to have clarity about what I want and I have to be able to express that clarity to the people that it matters. And in this case to myself um, and to other people around me, if, if I need to express it to them. So that's a little more, I think a little more subtle application of program than like, Oh yeah, step 10, boom, done. So that's sort of, I think what I've got to say about my week. So we've talked about a number of upcoming topics. Uh, I, I mentioned the, this concept of talking about the word we, it's a we program. What does it mean that it's a we program? And that makes me think about, well, how hearing other people's experience and sharing our own experience is, I mean, that's the essence of the al program. And it's the essence of AA program. Uh, and it actually says that in the big book somewhere about, you know, the core of the program is one alcoholic uh, sharing with another or talking to another. I forget the exact wording. And I think that's also true in Al-Anon. And it's like, wow, how does that work? So kind of thinking about that, thinking about how this is a we program, not a me program, not a you program. And it's sort of the core and the mystery of the program. And then I was just today listening to last week's podcast and, and there was a, a caller who suggested the 12 gifts of Al-Anon, which I believe are in from survival to recovery. I I think last week in the show notes at uh, the recovery show.com, I actually made a link to an online copy of the 12 gifts. And I'm thinking, well, Oh, are there 12? I didn't know that. I just thought it was like a page of reading. Somebody, somebody actually broke them out into like 12. Um, You know, it's yeah. In the book, it's like, you know, a paragraph or two paragraphs or something. I'm thinking, well, okay, so I could do one of those each month. That would be a thing. Uh, so lots of ideas. Um, not sure what's going to happen next week. Um, I have a couple of friends who I've also been talking to about talking about family. And so I think we'll probably do another family episode with different families. Uh, and, and so it'll be a different episode. Anyway, um, you can join this conversation. You can leave us a voicemail or send us an email with your feedback or your questions or your sharing on upcoming topics. And Mara, how can people do that? You can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Call right now to 734-707-8795. You can also use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. If you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at com. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic of family or any of our upcoming topics. If you have a topic you'd like to t- us to talk about, also let us know. Where can our listeners find out more about The Recovery Show? That's our website, which is therecoveryshow.com. It's all one word, The Recovery Show. 
and it has all the information about the show, notes for each episode, an occasional blog, uh, links to the uh, music, typically YouTube videos, links to other recovery podcasts and websites as well. All of the information about how to contact us, the phone number, the voicemail button, the email address, are they're all on a, on a page at the website, which is therecoveryshow.com slash contact. And the reason I put that together is because if you're on your mobile, your mobile device, your phone or your tablet, the phone number, the email address that should be right up at the top of the page, they're actually all the way at the bottom and you got to scroll, 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 scroll. So you can click on the menu button uh, or tap on the menu button on your phone and you'll see a contact link there that has, has all that information. Of course, you can also be a guest host as Mara is today. We can do this by phone or FaceTime or Skype and probably other modalities if those work for you. And email feedback at com if you're interested. And again, there's more information about that on the contact page on the website. We didn't get any emails or voicemails this week. And so we'll skip right ahead to the end of the show. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to The Recovery Show, but we do have some expenses, which run about $60 per month. You can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ears in a couple of ways. We have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly, just like Christine did today. We have put together a list of recovery-related books. Click on the books link at the top of the page. If you order one of these books from Amazon through our website, we will receive a small commission. In fact, anything you, you order from Amazon after clicking on one of the links will help us. It costs you nothing extra and helps keep us on the air. Thank you for your support in whatever form you give it, including just listening to us. We are here for you. Thank you. And the last song, or the the other song that I picked for this episode is by Pearl Jam. It's called My Father's Son. And I just pulled out some lyrics that, again, speak to the way in which we consciously or unconsciously uh, bring stuff from the family that we grew up in, bring stuff from how our parents acted or treated us uh, into our adult lives. The lyrics, I come from a genius. I am my father's son. Yeah, too bad he was a psychopath, and now I'm the next in line. Loneliness, dear mother, yes, surely she's a work of art. Might never get top dollar, but she gave us all a star. Can I get a reprieve? This gene pool don't hurt me. Or maybe it does. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time. 